lot of people who love Jesus singing today. And it comes out of them. Now they're ready to hear the word of God because we're your children. So we love to sing praises to you and we love to feed on your truth. We have truth. The world does not. We have truth. It is your truth and it is flawless because you cannot lie. And so we hang our life on this truth. And so now as a church, as we break forth the word and learn from it and grasp this magnificent Savior, the great I am God again, we pray that you would stir in our hearts. We would be willing to lay down our lives and follow you in areas that maybe we're withholding. Thank you for being so wonderful, Lord Jesus. Thank you for capturing our hearts and our minds. Lord, we do pray for the church around the world. We know the difficulties in Ukraine and Russia, but so many countries are using this time to really attack the church in many ways. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue as you promised to protect the church. Keep the gates of hell back, Lord, as we await your return. Lord, we ask that your gospel would be unhindered. It would go forth. In fact, you would use these difficult times for great conversations both here in America and around the world of a Savior who can set the captive free. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries that are scattered in many of these places, Lord. Strengthen them and uphold them, Lord. Cause us to give and to hang on to that rope for them while they're lowered down into different cultures and different issues that they deal with in country, why they share the gospel. Lord, we thank you that we too are missionaries here. Our world around us is becoming in a greater and greater need of missionaries every day. And we're here, Lord. And so send us. May we be equipped and ready to go. Maybe we'd be willing to, to study a little more, be more discipled, take a class, but always ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Cause this church to be ready to do that. Lord, now we thank you for the word. We find such comfort as we study it. May it encourage and direct our hearts and souls towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. I decided this week to take a little hiatus from uh, 1 Corinthians. I will return next week to chapter 8. Um, I think some people saw that it was, it was in the book of John. They thought I wasn't here. But <laughs> I do love to take little breaks. Um, you know, challenge, that was a challenging passage through uh, chapter 7, and it really worked me. So I thought I would take something a little, a little lighter. In this passage, the Lord just laid on my heart, and I go, oh, goodness, this is a deep passage. <laughs> uh, so I enjoyed my study uh, this week getting ready for this. Well, I've entitled the sermon, Death-Beating Savior, a death-beating Savior and his fearless followers. That's what he is, right? He beats death, and then he gathers to himself these fearless followers called the church of Jesus Christ, his bride. And so as you turn to John 8, starting in verse 48, down through the end of the chapter, I want to give you some thoughts today. First, I want you to see the kindness of Jesus and I want you to see particularly how he handles himself in stiff opposition. I want you to learn from that. There's a lot of opposition coming our way, so we go to the one who stood in opposition. So we want to learn from that. Second, we also want to grasp the meaning of eternal life today. 
He's going to talk about eternal life and death and what happens to believers and so forth. We've got to get our minds around that because if you don't, fear will push you to do things you wish you wouldn't have. And then third, I want to marvel. And these will be inter, intermixed as I go through. I want you to marvel at the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. <laughs> He's God. He's the I am God, and we'll explain that more as we go through this. But I want you to marvel at him, that you have, a, you have a Savior. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God, and he is God. And he walked on this earth so that we can walk with him in eternity. Don't miss that today. Well, what a joy. Well, three thoughts this morning. Number one, opposition against Jesus brings out the beauty of his glory and the security of his followers. Well, the purpose to show opposition is, is, is for several reasons. Um, one is we want to see that there is a strategic, uh, oppose, there's those who strategically oppose Christ and his people. And they, they are not shy about it. These are people who looked at Jesus and called him a demonic. They, they shoot hard, they shoot for the heart in a lot of ways. And this text is, is not pleasant to look at when you see Jesus go through opposition, but, but it's important to see this. And, and when you think about that, Jesus said in John 1.11 that he came to his own and what his own did not receive him. So when we look at opposition, we realize that this is not an easy thing. This is, this is your people who call you a demonic and reach for stones to kill you. And so here we see this great opposition. The reason for describing the opposition is because we want to see the beauty of Jesus under that pressure. What does he do? How does he handle himself? See, they kind of demand it. They say in verse 53, you can see this, whom do you make yourself out to be? They're actually t demanding who he is during this pressure, and he's certainly going to tell them. We'll see as he works his way down through this text, as this fierce um, opposition comes to an end as Jesus says before Abraham, I am. That term just infuriates them, as you will see, and they will take up stones to kill him. They'll try to act out on uh, Leviticus 24, which we'll be to in a couple of weeks as we study that in midweek, and that was to stone those who make themselves out to be God. But Jesus will hide himself. <laughs> he has the ability, because he's still God, to move within the group and disappear, because it's not his time he did not come to die by stoning. He came to die by crucifixion for our sins. And they were no way, uh, in any shape or form, were going to kill him before his hour. And so that's the way the story will end. But our text begins with this indictment, if you will, of Jesus. And it ends with that very violent attempt for Christ's life. But look at verse 48 with me. This is where it begins. The Jews answered them. He's been teaching on his deity and who he is. And so the Jews respond and say to him, 
Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jews despise Samaritans. Uh, This is a a racially charged slur. Samaritans were people who were left in the nation um, after Babylon had come and taken most of the people away. They intermarried them. They brought in peoples from around the world and left them in Samaria. And there became a race called Samaritans. They were looked at as half-breeds who intermarried with pagans during the 6th century. And then they developed their own form of worship. You see this when you come to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She says, you guys worship there, but we worship here. We believe this. And they came with their own view of God and where to worship. So calling Jesus a Samaritan was really a a racial charge. It was insinuating that, that he has a father, but nobody knows, and he's really illegitimate, and you would know the word we would use for that, wouldn't you? This is unkind. This is strong opposition. And to make the insult even more intense, they called him a demonic. (laughs) You have a demon, they say. And so this is just clear, cruel opposition. And it's amazing that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'll see you later and walk away. If you've ever been in an intense opposition where people do not bend, they just keep hurling insults at you, you probably need to walk away at some point, but Jesus does not. He answers them in verse 49 and 50. Look what the Bible has to say here. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. No, no, no question. <laughs> he just clear, direct statement. I don't have a demon. You're wrong. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. And what Jesus does miraculously throughout the book of John, particularly, John records this, is he constantly links thoughts together of equality. (laughs) And here, and and, and believe me, in the original language, as they're hearing Jesus say these things, it is just infuriating him the way it talks. In English, we don't quite get the strength of it, but these statements are statements of equality. (laughs) And so when he says... I honor my father and you dishonor me. That means you're dishonoring the father because you're dishonoring me. And they know it. They know exactly what he's saying. And they begin to steam. Look at verse 50 with me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. So Jesus, in effect, is saying, I don't need to defend myself because God the Father, my Father, He seeks my glory when you don't. Because He has to. We share glory. And so if you dishonor me, instead of glorifying me, Jesus is saying, you set yourself against Yahweh. Well, this is why they're just getting so upset, right? You set yourself against my Father. And if you oppose me, you oppose the one who is committed to me, who sent me. He's drawn a line in the sand, isn't he? And so Jesus teaches us in reality to wait on the Father who will vindicate us because he knows us and loves us. He's showing us a great example how to do that. But there is also a warning of final judgment here. He says, 
you don't want to do this because in the end, my father, Yahweh, is going to be the one who judges you. Notice at the end of verse 50. He says, it's the one who seeks, and notice this word, judges. In other words, eternal things are at stake when you're in opposition against me. <laughs> you don't know the ramifications of what's going to fall upon you when you, now listen to this very carefully, when you reject me, you reject him, and he'll judge you. See, the world easily likes a God. You can pray in God's name. You can talk about a God. But you can't talk about the incarnate God. Because Jesus is always linked to the eternal Father. And here he brings that out. You will bring judgment upon yourself because when you sin against me, you sin against the Father. Now, the Almighty God defends his Son's glory. He always has, always will. It's because it's shared glory. And when it comes to final judgment, the charges are going to be sins against the glory of Jesus Christ. You've rejected him. You've not believed who he is. And because you did not believe who he is, you don't believe who I am. And so what do you do with the glory of Jesus? Well, you either mock it, reject it, or you bend the knee to it. One of the three. You either mock it, reject it, or you submit to the lordship of Jesus. See, there's two kinds of people in this room. You've either rejected it, and you may have done that passively because you've been to church all your life or you're raised in a Christian country or a Christian home of some sort, or you have submitted, you have bent your knee to the lordship, the ultimate authority of all life in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's either one or the other. So the Bible doesn't have room for a Christian who is non-committed to Jesus Christ. This is not there. Jesus talks about the spewing out of, of those that are just lukewarm. You're either with me or you're not. Now we know there are sometimes the Lord is gracious in process, bringing people through a process of knowing him. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those who truly bend the knee and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, if we turn away from him, or turn against him, God promises here in verse 50 that there's judgment coming, and, 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 and the Trinity is inseparable, right? So if God's going to judge you, Christ is going to judge you, because that's what the Bible teaches. Acts chapter 10, verse 42, Peter speaking with Cornelius, he says this, and he ordered us to preach to the people, that's what we're doing today, We've not changed this, right? We're still preaching the glories of Christ. And solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God, now listen to this, as judge over the living and the dead. Jesus, judge, living and the dead, the saved and the unsaved. And so if you reject Jesus, you reject God. If you reject God, you reject Jesus. And they're both going to judge you. And I would say this, the Spirit's involved in this because he inspires all of this. And so you've rejected the Trinity. Now Jesus first came not to judge, right? He first came to what? Save. That's why he's on the earth, right? And all through the book of John, if you study the book of John, and 
and love it as much as I do and love to read it constantly, you realize that Jesus did not come for judgment first, but for salvation. He did not come to condemn, but to save. John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into this world to judge the world at that particular time, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So that first visit is going to be very different than the second visit. Oh, he's coming back. And he will judge the living and the dead. In fact, the parting words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy says he solemnly charges Timothy to preach the word, to stand on truth because Jesus is coming back to judge. But that's who they're mocking here, aren't they? Now notice Jesus isn't finished here in his response. Look at verse 51. I mean, we might walk away, right? Somebody knocks on your door who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, and you try to share Christ with them, but you do want to warn them, right? You, want to, you should warn people who reject Jesus Christ. You can do that lovingly. You don't have to throw anything out or be mad. You can warn them. But Jesus not only warns them, but then he adds another piece. Look at verse 51 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In other words, if you've gotten to the point where you're, you're blaspheming me. You've called me a half-breed and a demonic. You're in great danger of God's judgment. Listen, I've come to save blind beggars next chapter. John 9. I've come to save the violent aggressors, Apostle Paul. And I've come to give the gift of salvation. So what you see right now is one who loves and is full of gifts to give you, to bring you to my Father, to bring you into his presence, holy and blameless. I'm not here right now to judge you. I have something better. And notice, if you keep my word, believe in me alone, that's what that means, keep my word. This isn't a list of things. The, his words summed up in that Jesus alone can bring you to the Father. If you keep my word, you will never see death. Now, isn't that glorious? Isn't that fun just to stop and think about for a moment? Do you believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he came to this earth not to judge the first time, but to save, to come and do what we could not do. See his glory of a one who could veil his deity, all the beauty of the I am God, veil that in humanity, walk on this earth for 33 years in perfection, be impeccable as they hang him on the cross, drive nails through him so that he could ultimately bring us to the Father. Isn't that glorious? The world doesn't get that, do they? <laughs> See, he's beautiful, isn't he? These people are mean. I mean, today, this is way outside of the woke and critical race movement. <laughs> Calling somebody racial slurs. And here he is. Look, if you believe in me, you won't see death. What, what kindness is here. See, this, this is what we see when we get saved. We see his glory, his beauty, the magnificent one who we say, I surrender all. <laughs> I come empty-handed. See, that's what makes him so beautiful. So this morning, let me ask you, have you seen his glory? 
I've said this many times from this pulpit. People say they come up and they're burdened about a child or a friend or someone that comes maybe off and on. And they often say they haven't seen his glory yet, they, or she hasn't seen his glory yet. This is what does it mean, Pastor? You know what it means because when they see the glory of Christ, they're changed. They're now gripped by a Savior who could do something they could not do. And, and though it may be gradual as God conforms them into the image of the Son, but they continue to be amazed at grace. Are you still amazed at grace? Are you still, listen, are you still overwhelmed that he chose to save you, brother, sister? Boy, if that ever grows old, you better check your spiritual pulse. Are you still amazed? I love the word captured. I use that for many years because there's so many things that try to capture us, but then they just wear off, right? What's the newest wave? What's the hottest car out, the greatest tech that's out. There's just something else that's going to replace that. And unfortunately, they do capture some Christians for a while. But are you truly captured by Jesus? When you hear a sermon like this or you read the Bible yourself, do you stand amazed at him? Or is there no spirit within you to bring that amazement? You're just dead in your response. In fact, you might even come up with arguments why you're not amazed. Are you captured with his beauty? Second thought here this morning is the great promise of Jesus is that he grants victory over death. What what a great promise. What if the promise was, well, you can believe in me and have a really lot better life and I'll, I'll help you get through some difficulties and maybe give you some prosperity on this earth, but I, I really can't do much about death. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm not here then <laughs> on Sundays. I mean, seriously. If our Savior can't be death, I mean, think about that, the, the amazing capturing truth of Jesus Christ that he has the ability to beat death. Look at verse 51 again with me. Truly, truly, not falsely, falsely. Because that's what the world thinks. Or maybe, maybe. Or I hope, I hope. No, he says truly, truly. I want you to know this. This is the living God speaking in incarnate form. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, believes that I am the I am God, that I am the one that can bring you to the Father, holy and blameless, he will never see death. That's a remarkable promise, isn't it? <laughs> never see death. It's amazing because of, of what Jesus doesn't say. He, he doesn't say, if anyone keeps my word, he will not die. No, it doesn't say that. Look at it again. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. So what death's he talking about? He's talking about the second death. Has to be. Because we have dear brothers and sisters who have passed away, lost several this week. Revelation chapter 20, after the great white throne judgment, the Bible says this, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. Jesus is talking about eternal death. Unfortunately, you can't believe how many people actually confuse this. Like, well, I'm not going to die. No, no, the Lord tarries, you're going to die. 
I hate to share that with you this morning if you maybe thought that wasn't going to happen. If Jesus doesn't come back, you and me are going to die. But we're not going to die eternally. Praise the Lord. Those who have faith in Christ alone, faith in Christ's finished work, this means that that Christian, that follower of Christ, may die physically before the return of Christ, but you will never die eternally. I've told kids this, because it's fun for kids to kind of think about this. One million, gazillion, fulfillion, whatever, the, I don't think those are numbers. The kids like it, though. Years from now, we're still alive with Christ. Still in fuel, listen to this, full, perfect joy for eternity because of what Jesus has done. Now, notice in verse 52, look at this. His adversaries respond, and they say to him, now we know that you have a demon. Well, that's it. You're demonic. You're delusional. Didn't C.S. Lewis said he's either a demonic, a liar, or a lunatic, or he's the savior, or something like that? They said, look, this is true. You've lost it. You've been given over to the dark side. Abraham died and the prophets also. Well, at least he got that right. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will, not, he will never taste death. Now, there are several things that are fascinating about this. Is one, you can see who they worship. <laughs> not Jesus. <laughs> uh, they didn't even bring Yahweh into the conversation here. They looked to the prophets, to the patriarchs, right? And they say those men have died. But then notice what they do. You, Jesus of Nazareth, you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Well, these adversaries repeat what Jesus says, but then change a word. <laughs> they say, you will not, not see, but taste death. If anyone keeps my word, he will not taste. Isn't that interesting? And remarkably, Jesus doesn't correct them. Okay, we'll go with taste. It's an Old Testament passage. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You clearly have not tasted me for goodness. And so Jesus is saying, if you keep my word, if you believe in me alone, what I say about myself, what the Father has said, and what the Father has done, and our great work of salvation that we're going to do together, if you believe that I alone can accomplish that, you won't see death, you won't even taste death. I think that's how he's responding to this. Now, you know this gospel account ends with the murder of Jesus. That's what happens. All the accounts of the gospel end with Jesus being killed, raised from the dead over victory of our sins. But the death of Jesus is explained through his substitutionary work for sinners like these adversaries and for us, right? And remember, maybe, maybe in this crowd, we don't know for sure, there's a man named Nicodemus. And others, because the Bible says there were many who believed but were afraid to follow. Maybe they're in this group. So Jesus, standing in front of these adversaries, 
adversaries, and knowing he's going to be the final lamb, the substitution for sinners, for these adversary people, and for all those who come like us who would believe by the grace of God, he knows that the Father sent him, and he says in John 10, 15, that even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So no matter what you think, I know the Father, the Father knows me, we have a plan, my plan and his plan are to lay down, lay down my life for you, for those who would believe. That's why John the Baptist pronounced him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So keeping the word of Jesus here, believing him, is to receive the words he speaks about himself, about his Father, and their collective work of salvation through his death and resurrection. And so Jesus says, if you keep these words, if you believe in me, if you cherish me, if you abide, he loves the word abide, I'm going abide in me, remain in me, because you've received salvation, you will remain. If these things are something you cherish and they transform your life, you will not see death. That's a great promise, isn't it? Anybody a little closer to death right now? Well, you woke up today. That's the good news. But it's one more day closer to death if the Lord doesn't return. But see the promise. You have a promise. You're not going to see death. You're going to see me, Jesus is saying. The great I am God. Now, often we hear words like this, um, and I heard these this week. It is with profound sadness that I share with you that so-and-so has died. This week, we, Gina and I have a dear friend, dear family, we've known for years, my age, Gina and I's age, children our age, working out of the gym, fell over, dead, died. He's an elder in his church. Um, in fact, Gina's parents attend that church. And these words came across on us to our text this week, and they were hard to hear. I mean, we love Fred, his name... His name's Fred, his wife's Denise. They have four beautiful children, two adopted. But there's far worse news. See, Fred knew Jesus. Fred loved to talk about Jesus and point people to Jesus and, and preach on the scriptures. Fred knew the Lord Jesus. So there's far worse news. You want to hear what it is? Is he didn't know Jesus. And he dies, and he goes to judgment and waits the great white throne judgment where the books will be opened and all his deeds that are recorded will judge him and he'll be tossed into the lake of fire, which is the second death. That's far worse news. And though Gina and I and our family and all our friends who know Fred and hurt for Denise, we weep and we hurt and we wish that wouldn't happen Fred's with the Lord, and there is great comfort because he'll never see death because of sin. See, too many, too many may die if Christ doesn't return. Many of us will. I mean, our bodies will fall into decay. See, death just has that ability to equalize everyone, right? It doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States. 
or you're on Skid Road. It doesn't matter if you have a glorious career or you did a lot of good deeds or whatever else you hold dear about yourself. Everyone dies if Jesus doesn't return. So what hope do you have? Hebrews 9 says, look, every man is appointed unto death. And once death comes, then comes judgment. Because the wages of sin is death, so all die. So if you're a sinner, and everyone is, death is inevitable. Death's coming. You're going to die. Or, or will you? Because Jesus says you're not even going to see death. I, I love these words. I, I just found myself staring at them this week. Truly, truly, not falsely, falsely. I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, verse 51, he will not see death. He will not taste death. Those in Christ who die before us are not dead. Anybody have a loved one who knew Jesus Christ who's dead physically? A lot of us, right? We've had a lot of funerals here since I've been here in the six and a half years. What's, what still amazes us is we, we still proclaim this truth, even though we don't see those people, because God has granted us faith to believe what Jesus says, that those who are in Christ, those who accepted his finished work, not none of ours, his finished work, what him and the Father did together for our salvation, we believe without seeing that the loved ones that we love dearly who have died, the friends of this world are alive <laughs> with Jesus. And so we keep proclaiming this truth. And so Christian funerals are so different. <laughs> They're so different. When's the last one time you've been to a full pagan uh, funeral service that we didn't do? Because we do them every once in a while, but we bring the gospel into them and they get a little more glorious. I've had to do a few in my lifetime. And I come home weeping because of so much lack of hope. See, our funeral services, if you have one of us, one of the elders, one of the pastors do your service here. I promise if, if we know, which well, it's not hard to know, we recognize Christians, right? We, we, we reflect Jesus, right? So we should know each other. When we do your service or you do mine, <laughs> I hope it's glorious. Because Jesus died and there is no longer fear of death. Look at chapter 11. Jesus gives us a little bit of a preview of death in Lazarus. Jesus, in his ultimate wisdom, doesn't come when he hears Lazarus is, is sick. And even tells him that this sickness, this sickness isn't to death. And he dies. Because he knows. He, first, he understands he's going to raise him from the dead. This guy's not going to stay dead physically. But he also knows something greater. Look at verses 25 and 26. He's having this conversation with his sister. Martha is, well, Lord, if, if you would have got here, right? Verse 25, Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Who, he who believes in me, that one who believes in Jesus Christ as, as jointly working with the Father because they share, share the same glory, they have an eternal plan of salvation, I've come and perfectly going to execute this, will live even if he dies. 
Mary's going, <laughs> he's over there. <laughs> In fact, if you roll that stone back, <laughs> woo. But look what else he does, verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Here's a question for you in this room. Do you believe this? You cannot believe in some fairy tale of afterlife if God has, for what the world thinks. To us, it's no fairy tale. To them, it is. But to us, because of faith, has given you the ability to believe that you will not die. And he's asking her, do you believe this? This is a great question. So there's Lazarus. Though he died, he never dies. <laughs> so you go, well, do we die? Yes. Well, do we die? No. <laughs> yes, we die. Though he die, yet he will live, the Bible says. So no, we don't die. Everyone who lives and believes in him shall not die. <laughs> so here's what happens. Lazarus' body's laying in this grave. <laughs> but Lazarus not dead. His body's dead, but, but he's not dead. I think we go to Christ's life as well to help us understand this, right? Jesus Christ hangs on the cross. He takes the wrath of the Father as though he committed our sins. He hangs there, takes that judgment in our place as the sacrificial final lamb. And when he's done in full control, because it's all completed, the work is done, he, not anybody else, he gives up his spirit. And he dies physically. So Peter, watching this, writes this later in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, For Christ also died for sins once and for all. Great statement of the gospel. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. Now listen to this. Having been put to death in the flesh, he died fleshly, right? Pulse went out of him. They bled him out. He's physically dead, but listen to the rest of this verse. But, ha, excuse me, but was made alive in the spirit. So he's fully alive. In fact, Peter goes on to talk about that when during this time while his body is not breathing in the grave, he goes to, to Hades and preaches to those, those wicked demonics probably from Genesis chapter 6 and forth and tells them, I beat you. Now, there's a lot of people mess with that passage. He is down there to say, I beat you. He's alive in the spirit, isn't he? We've been studying on last, last week in Leviticus. We've been talking about the feast. And we're talking about the first fruits. And you cannot help but talk about the first fruits feast, the feast of harvest, the first, of fruits, first fruits, and not get to Jesus because the term is used to Jesus all the time. So all of that shadow of things to come was pointing towards Jesus, that festival that the Jews celebrated. He is the first fruits. He went into the grave and came out alive. Isn't that cool? He's the first fruit. And he leads a host of those who believe with him. He's the elder brother. He's the example that God through Christ beats death. And he is our first fruits. Oh, how beautiful that is. I think even more importantly is the way Jesus describes this back in John chapter 5. Before he's in this text, John chapter 5 verse 24 says, truly, truly, again, not falsely, falsely, 
I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes them, right? Salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, who sent me has eternal life. So if God grants you faith and you believe, you have eternal life. He does not come into the, excuse me, he did not come in this world to, to bring judgment. Then this little phrase right here, I'm after, but has passed from death to life. So our dear loved ones that are often in caskets or memories of something right in front of us when we do services here, we have confidence that that dear brother or sister has passed from death to life. What a joy. I don't like using this term. I try to think of a better term. We have a free pass from death to life. The only reason I don't like it is because it wasn't free. It cost Jesus his life. Right? He died physically for us. But for us, it's free. Right? It's the gift of salvation, and the gift remains a gift as long as we don't try to give something for it. Right? That's the problem with the religions of the world. It's this free pass now. <laughs> we, we don't have to die. We can live with Jesus. So those who place their faith in Jesus alone have passed already from death to life. Isn't that fascinating to think about? I've already beat death. I beat the second death, and I've got to be careful with I. Jesus beat it for me, right? I, I say in that to give you confidence to live for Jesus. Give, it, give you confidence in the face of coronavirus <laughs> or cancer or, or car wrecks or, or a million other things that God is so creative at taking his children home with. <laughs> give you confidence. In a sense, because of Jesus, I've, I've already passed from death to life. And now what awaits us is eternal life, and eternal life cannot end by definition, right? Write the definition of eternal life. It can't have anything about ending in it. <laughs> it never ends. And so the Christian, the Christ follower, we don't see death. We don't taste death. Our bodies might die. They may look like they're sleeping. I've done a lot of funerals, and you've probably heard this little Little children come up and go, Mommy, he's just sleeping. And then, of course, the soul sleeps is a heresy. We're not talking about that. We're, we just, it, that's why the Bible often uses the word sleep. Because that body right there, though the soul is with the Lord, in full spirit, right, our full person is with the Lord, that body's there and God promises to resurrect it, just like he resurrected his sons. And that will happen on that last trump. 1 Corinthians 15 52, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Oh, that's a great promise. But see, when our bodies die, we don't die. We pass from death to life, eternal life, unbroken, unending. And what this means is when you're born again, John chapter 3, you receive the gift of life. Born again. This life can't be taken from you. It's eternal. And I want you to think of it this way. In this new spiritual life, listen, we have an ability to have fellowship with God, an experience with God, speak with God, hear from God, read His Word, know His Word, all comes through the work of the Spirit, a sense of love that's poured out with us. And listen, that fellowship cannot be broken by death. 
I, I think that's such an important thing to try to get through our heads here today. Death cannot break our fellowship with God. It only enhances it. Now, our bodies may die. And physically, that'll be a change. But it only leads to instant perfection. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8. Therefore, being, always, being of always good courage, right? Encouraging the saints here. These, these Corinthians that are struggling with encouragement, right? And knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So there's this time we're here that we're not right in his presence, physically presence that we will be with when, we're, when we pass from this life to the next. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We believe that to be true. Now then he says this, we are of good courage. I say prefer rather, now here's what we rather want, to be absent from the body. It's laying there in the casket. But guess what? To be at home with the Lord. No broken fellowship through death. Death cannot break your fellowship with the Almighty because Jesus has provided a way that cannot be broken. And the life we have with Christ in God today is because of that new birth which never ends. This birth, one that was born October 21st, 1964, oh, that one's going to laugh. It ain't going to pass mustard and I really don't want to take it into the next life. It's having trouble in this life. But Scott, the person that God saved, the spirit small s of God uh, that he gave me, made me in his image, that's going to live forever. And then God is going to give me a new body through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that will reflect his son perfectly. Now we'll come back in a moment to talk about some implications of how we live now from this, but I want to take just one more look at the beauty of Jesus in this last point, verse, uh, number three, the great I am and our great freedom from fear. The adversaries are mocking him, right? Verses 52 and 53, there's his, his response. They, they mock him. You have a demon. Everybody else died. Who do you think you are? And he gives an answer here that really has kind of two parts and it's amazing because they're they're eventually going to kill Jesus because he's a blasphemer, right? John chapter 10, Jesus says, why are you stoning me? What good works, which ones are you going to stone me for? They said, none of them. We're not stoning you for good works. We're, we're stoning you because you make yourself out to be God. Chapter 19 of John, verse 7, um, uh, Pilate has proclaimed him innocent over and over. And the Jews say, uh, we have a law that this man ought to die because of that law. And they say this, because he made himself out to be the son of God, made himself to be equal with God. That's what they're speaking of. So we need to realize that as we hear this, you're facing the same choice. Do you see Jesus as a blasphemer or do you see him as God? He's either demonic or he's the ultimate authority over the demonic world and everything else. So, so he starts to answer this in verses 54 and 56. Look with me in these verses. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. What does he mean by that? If I separate myself from the Father, if I detach myself from the Trinity, I'm nobody, you should stone me. That's what he's telling them there. 
It is my Father who glorifies me. It's the Father that says, I can't detach myself from him. I share his essence. I share his glory. And then he says this, of whom you say, he is your God. He's trying to drive it home. You're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. That's what people do. When you share Jesus with somebody, when you share a plain gospel that Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life, died a perfect death in your place for your sins, and they struggle with that word sin. That's a bad word for them. If they can't get by that, they are rejecting the Father. And Jesus is making that clear. You're rejecting. A lot of people, well, I have a God. I say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? I pledge allegiance. They have a designer God. And so verse 55, he says, and you, and you have not come to know him. I mean, these guys, they wrote the book on who God is. They think they have it. They add laws to every day of the week because they think they're honoring God. They think they know God. Jesus says, you don't know him. See, if you detach me from God, you don't know God. I'm the only way to the Father. I give life and I'm truth. And if you reject me, you're not getting to the Father. That's what he's doing, right? The same message that Jesus taught throughout his ministry. But I know him. I love that. I know him. We're one. We've been together all of eternity. We have no beginning. We share essence and glory together. And if I said I didn't know him, like you're trying to get me to do, listen to this, I'd be a liar. What does he say? Like you. Man, they're already looking for stones. Where's that rock at? Fascinating, isn't it, how he handles this? Now, now look at this. End of verse 55, but you don't know him. You know why? Because you don't keep his word. His word is about me. In fact, all of the Old Testament was about me. Me in the garden. Me, the promised one. Who would, who would crush the head of the serpent. Me, about the nation of Israel and gathering all people to himself. Me, in the Psalms. Me, in the prophets. So you don't know me. You reject me. Now, notice what he does in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. He said, What? Abraham saw my day. He saw the time and when I was alive and reigning. I, I, I think that day, that's a, it's a, this is one that needs more work, and we'll come back to this to another time, but commentators are all over the board trying to figure out what this means. But it, that day, that's talking about him ruling and reigning most likely. I, I think sometimes we look at it and we go, oh, just Mo, uh, Abraham knew that Jesus was going to be born someday, the Messiah was going to come. I think it's bigger than that. I think we see that in Hebrews 11 when he talks about this kingdom, this promised kingdom and so forth that Abraham believed he would see. It's big, isn't it? And, and, and I think here that Jesus doesn't stop in his explanation here. He's going to push these guys to their limit because their adversaries, they don't care anyway. Even if he gave them an explanation what that day was and all of that, they wouldn't care because they don't, they don't care. But notice what he does. He says... Who do you, he's responding to this, who do you make yourself out to be? He says, well, I'm going to show you. 
I'm, I'm what the Father has sent. I'm the reflection of the Father. And your father, Abraham, whom you seem to put more stock, has great rejoicing in me. Now look what he does in verse 57 through 59. Your father, Abraham, rejoices to see my day in 56. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh-oh. Now we have the clearest, in verse 58, most straightforward claim in the gospel that Jesus is Yahweh. <laughs> He's the God of Israel. He's the great I am of Exodus 3.14. This, this rocked their world and they were ready to throw rocks. Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the Almighty. And Jesus was not just talking about his pre-existence when he says, you know, I saw Abraham and all of that. Because if he, if he wanted to do that, he would just said, before Abraham was, I was. That's not what he's talking about. And I know a lot of religions try to talk about Jesus and, well, yeah, he was around in spirit and so forth. No, no, no. That's not what he's talking about. This isn't about pre-existence. This is about the I am God of Exodus 3.14. And the implications of this are staggering for your life, my life, for this world, and for eternity. Because if he is the I am God, you will never exhaust who he is. That statement takes in the, everything there is about God. He's the fullness of God in deity, right? In bodily form, Paul says in Colossians. And... and and so when he says, I'm this, I am God, I, I, I have control of the past, the future, the present. I have control of creation. I have control of sustaining it. I have control of all things. Everything's in my hand. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Now, for us, because Jesus is God, that means his work on the cross and his promises that we've had here are totally successful. Right? So you can trust his word. You can trust that Jesus did what he said he did, right? He is who he said he is, and he did exactly what he said he did. You can trust him because he's the I am God. He's not just some human man that some spirit indwelt for a little while. So it gives you confidence in Jesus. And so when Jesus says, you will never see death, you'll never see death. Right? Do you believe that? It's not just coming from some guy who named himself Jesus. It's coming from the I am God. So I can believe him, right? His word never fails. So listen to this great a phrase that the Pharisees loved, a passage was Isaiah 49.10, where Yahweh, say, Yahweh says, My counsel stands, shall stand, excuse me, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the I am God. So that means that he has to be God in his language. The way he speaks shows himself to be Jesus, not only of Nazareth, because he had to come and dress himself in humanity so he could die for us, but he has to be that God who has all things under his control. And he promises we won't see death because he can't lie. Now, Another massive application for us is what he does for us while we're still in this life before we actually see physical death. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. 
Let me close with this passage. Verse 14 and 15. <laughs> Let's see what the I am Jesus is doing, right? The I am God. Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, that means you can die. If you're flesh and blood, good news is you're dying. <laughs> right? We share in flesh and blood. No, notice this. He himself likewise. So the way God and Christ and the Spirit, the Trinity, planned our salvation out was that the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come down, dress himself in flesh like the children on earth, be like us in every aspect without sin. He would do this. He would partake of the same, the verse says. And then this is the reason why, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil. So here's the I am God who dresses himself in humanity so that, so that he can beat death. He can be the representative for man. He can represent us perfectly without sin, but he can be one of us so that death gets beat, Satan gets beat. And notice in verse 18 that that might free those who through the fear of death. Now he's not only taking care of your death, he's taking care of the fear of death. Isn't that amazing? That we were subject to slaves all our lives. So the great I am God not only conquers death, but he conquers, and brothers and sisters, we've got to get this down, otherwise you won't serve him very well. He conquers the fear of death. That's what motivates us. <laughs> That's what helps us serve him. Notice the whole human race has been for a lifelong of slavery, the fear of death. They, they're constant. I read some unknown author said this, the world is haunted by death. Death haunts humans like a prey. It's a motivation of human existence to avoid the fatality of death to overcome it by denying it some way and its final destiny for man. Man is scared to death of death. <laughs> but the I am God, Jesus, is the answer. And he's the answer because he's the only way and he's the only truth and he's the only life that can beat death. And the world feels threatened because of their self-righteousness. They feel threatened. And they look to get rid of those who follow because that's what they did with Jesus. <laughs> they got to get rid of this. And so the cycle just repeats itself. It was in Christ's time. They had to get rid of Christ. They had to stone him, crucify him, do whatever they can. They had to get rid of him. And they still do it to this day. Now, they fight fear in different ways, too. Man is constantly coming up. If you watch any amount of TV at all, there's some new cream you need. Um, some new drug that came out of the sea of somewhere in the bottom of it, in the seaweed in it. So you can live longer. You might want to cryo-wrap yourself or something. And science is constantly searching to end cancer and all those things, and we're all for that thing, but that's, there's a reason for that, right? There's a great fear of death. And, and then, and then... <laughs> 
God in his infinite will and wisdom, and this is my thought, you can talk to me later about this, if his infinite will wisdom lets a little virus that you can't see get into this world and everybody goes crazy. And you go, oh my goodness. We're worried about wrinkles. And there's a virus you can't see. Another person died the last week or two. That broke my heart. This man um, I met several times. He did everything in his power to hold off death. Even in his older age, he would go to the gym. He bragged about this, and he'd go twice a day. He took everything he could find. He, he did everything he could find to hold off death, and he died a couple of weeks ago. And it wasn't pretty. I talked to his daughter and told her I was sorry. What I couldn't say was he beat death because he rejected Jesus. And so now he's got to deal with the second death. And so what the Bible's teaching is here, brothers and sisters, is the answer of Jesus as the great I am for all of eternity and that he becomes fully man while completely maintaining his deity so that he could die for sin and destroy death and the one who has the power over death and rise triumphantly over sin, Satan, and death and in this way only frees us from a lifelong bondage of fear of death and he remains completely rejected by the world. So we have great hope. But that causes problems, that causes attacks, that causes what we see in, in John chapter 8 in our own lives. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, the Bible is telling you, do not fear death. And I think one of the problems when we do, and I'll close with this, is Christians have a choice to say, God, I'm either going to trust you with my life, I'm, I'm going to step out, and I'm going to go back to church, I'm going to, I'm going to witness, I'm going to go see my neighbor who's scared, I'm, I'm going to do these things, or you don't, and you live this cautious life, you, you, you confine yourself, you, 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 you protect yourself from any risk, you don't see the adventure of following Jesus and, and fulfilling dreams of sharing Christ with somebody, and pretty soon you just become almost sterile in your faith. Look, if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed, the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 15, we'll get there, but boy, at the end of that, isn't that so beautiful? The restraints of death are pulled off us. Of you know, death, where's your sting? Where's your sting? You have no sting or death. Poke away all you want. You're free from it. And so we're not to live in bondage like the world lives anymore. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. Do you believe that? Look, the world desperately needs Christians who are fearless. Are you fearless? Or do you get up afraid of what the world has or what's going to happen to you today? We need fearless Christians. We're starting a Bible school in this age. <laughs> We're crazy. We got a seminary going. We, we got kids. We're training from littlest down to know and believe in Jesus. We're pouring discipleship into you. Soul groups, discipleship groups, 
Bible studies. We don't want you to live in fear. It's no good to anybody. Father, thank you for a very challenging message as we study your son as the ultimate example of how to live this life in a very fallen and opposing world. He did it with joy and accuracy. He was here to save, Lord, and we still have that mission. We're here to tell people how they can be saved from their sins and death and then have joy in Jesus. That's what we're here to do, Lord. Let us not be overwhelmed with fears. You know our days. They're numbered. We can't add one, Lord. (laughs) May we go out as soldiers, humble soldiers for Jesus Christ. Pray for our friends and our family in Christ in Ukraine. May they strengthen us to stand for Jesus. In his name we say, amen.